You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow... You shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jabus, that is, Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jabus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites, and he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going? And where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah, to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to the house of Yahweh, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys, with bread and wine for me and your female servant, and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you, I will care for all your wants, only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city 
worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine laying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to Yahweh at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people, of all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, four hundred thousand men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, Tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah, that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provisions for the people, that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man, And the tribes of Israel sent men throughout all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Every one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. 
and the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And Yahweh said, Judah shall go up first. Then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin, and the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. The people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before Yahweh until the evening, and they inquired of Yahweh, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And Yahweh said, Go up against them. So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day, and Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before Yahweh and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before Yahweh. And the people of Israel inquired of Yahweh, for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And Yahweh said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah, and the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah, as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city, and as at other times they began to strike and kill some of the people in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah, and in the open country, about thirty men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, They are routed before us, as at the first. But the people of Israel said, Let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel, who were in ambush, rushed out of their places from Ma'ara Geba. And there came against Gibeah ten thousand chosen men out of all Israel, and the battle was hard. But the Benjaminites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And Yahweh defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the people of Israel destroyed twenty-five thousand one hundred men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. Then the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that when they made a great cloud of smoke rise up out of the city, the men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. They said, surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city, In a column of smoke, the Benjaminites looked behind them, and behold, the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, 
but the battle overtook them. And those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst, surrounding the Benjaminites. They pursued them and trod them down from Noha, as far as opposite Gibeah on the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor. And they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon. 5,000 men of them were cut down in the highways, and they were pursued hard to Gidom, and 2,000 men of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon and remained at the rock of Ramon for months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men and beasts and all that they found and all the towns that they found they set on fire. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 713 of this podcast. Today is Thursday, September 14th, 2023. And that was Judges chapter 19 and Judges chapter 20, where we have a bit of a civil war on our hands in Israel. We have a Levite who, it's told had a wife, rather a concubine, which is to say that this Levite had a kind of wife, kind of slave. That's what a concubine is, kind of a wife, kind of a slave, kind of a hybridized, not really a full-fledged wife in the most honorable of senses, but a wife. He had a unfaithful wife who left him and went back to her father to live with her father for four months and what does the Levite do? He goes after her and his father-in-law welcomes him and is very hospitable and for some reason doesn't want this son-in-law and daughter of his to go. Doesn't want to let them go on their way, but keeps trying to delay them. Why is that? Well, we don't know, but maybe there's a sense of foreboding even just in, oh, don't go yet. No, no, no. How about you just stay another day? No, don't go yet. Stay another day. Maybe there's a sense of foreboding that something is coming. Something is on the horizon here for this Levite, for his concubine, for Israel. But at the last, you have to wonder if the man had either A, said sooner, no, we're going, we're going. That's it. No, we've got to go. I've got to get back. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Or if he had listened just a little bit longer, one or the other, but because he left when he did, he was coming through Gibeah right around the time that these worthless fellows were going to come out of the shadows and make trouble. They were going to make trouble. And remember, Gibeah was that people group who put on this elaborate deception They put on rags and they got old, crusty bread, old dry bread and old wineskins. And they put on this big show as they came out to meet the people of Israel, claiming that they had heard of Israel and Israel's God from a far off land. And they had come. They, They were here. They had come to join Israel and to worship Israel's God. 
and to serve Israel. And so they said, hey, let's hurry up. Let's make a covenant between us and you. And Israel said, okay, sure, we will make a covenant with you. And then they all alike had a very different conversation when Israel realized that, wait a second, these people, these men of Gibeah are actually from the territory we're supposed to be possessing. These men of Gibeah, these people of Gibeah, they're one of the people groups that we were supposed to totally put to the sword. And so Joshua questions them on this and challenges them on this and says, why did you lie to us? And the answer is obvious. You don't even really have to ask the question. Well, we lied to you because we didn't want to die. (laughs) It's as simple as that. We figured it was better to come and lie to you and swear to serve you faithfully. We'll carry water and chop wood and anything else you want us to do, but that would be better than us dying. I mean, obviously. And so then the story gets even stranger because the surrounding peoples of Canaan, they are going to get back at Gibeah. They're going to strike Gibeah and kill these men and women and children of Gibeah because Gibeah broke rank. Gibeah left the gang, and now it's going to be an exemplary thing. It's going to be what you don't do, you don't cross these kings, these little petty kingdoms in Canaan. You don't do it. We're going to make an example out of Gibeah. Well, Gibeah calls on Israel and asks, please, please, please don't let us die. Don't let your servants be killed like this. Please save us. And interestingly, That's exactly what Joshua and the Israelites do. They do come to the rescue of Gibeah. Well, fast forward a little bit, and we don't know exactly how long, really, because Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, is the priest at this time. And so it's not that far down the road. Maybe Phinehas is older at this point, but this is an important story in understanding how quickly, within a few short generations, Israel has lost the plot. And now you have a war of one tribe against all the other tribes. Over what? Right? What is the major infraction? The major infraction is a violation of the laws of hospitality, for one thing. And also, you've got these men of Gibeah who had demanded that this Levite, of all people, a Levite, be handed over to them so that they could know him, which is to say, so that they could rape him. So these men of Gibeah feel very secure, or they just don't care. And this is the kind of behavior, the kind of attitude that got Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed. So this is an echo of that. What happens here is an echo of what happened earlier with Sodom and Gomorrah that caused God to destroy the cities of the plain with fire and brimstone. But these men of Gibeah, they demand the Levite. And the old man who is playing host to this party says, please don't do this thing. Very similar to Lot. When Lot goes and confronts the men of Sodom who have come to rape the angels, they don't realize they're angels, they just think they're men. When Lot goes to the door and has that conversation with the men of Sodom, it's a very similar kind of a conversation to what goes on between this old man and the men of Gibeah, these worthless fellows. And very similarly, you have again an echo where the old man offers his daughter and the Levite offers his concubine. Here, 
take them. Do what you will with them. Which is, again, also, it goes without saying, just appalling, right? In our day, we say, wow, what in the world? What kind of fathers, what kind of a husband are these men in the Old Testament that they would hand over their daughters or their wife even to the men of the town to abuse and to rape? And even in the case of the concubine, to rape to death. These men of Gibeah rape her to death. And it's just this very abrasive and very jarring story. Because what does the Levite do? He comes out in the morning and he finds that there's this concubine of his who is lying motionless. He says, get up, let's go. It's time to go. Very callous, very unfeeling, very mean. And she doesn't answer. And so what does he do? He puts her on the donkey and goes home. And she's still unresponsive because she's dead. And so he cuts her into little pieces and sends her all over Israel. And that too, there's another very jarring thing here. I mean, it's just jarring all the way through. And then all of Israel is incensed. What in the world? What has happened? This is not okay. This must be dealt with. And so all of Israel is going to march out. But then why do they need such a large force? Why do the men of Israel need such a large force to go and deal justice to the men of Gibeah? these worthless fellows who were only able to field 700 men. It would seem as though there was an expectation on all sides that Benjamin might just say, no, you don't. You don't come into our territory and demand justice. You don't do that. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happens. The tribe of Benjamin refuses to hand over these worthless fellows of Gibeah which is to say that they're going to take the side of Gibeah. And so it seems as though this is all just Israel deciding that there's going to be this war. There's no consulting of God until there is a loss and another loss and a lot of men of Israel are dying. Only then is there the consult- <laughs> there's a consultation with God. There's only a consultation with God after a couple of days of major losses because it turns out the men of Gibeah and the Benjaminites are pretty good fighters, pretty good at the whole killing thing. And what's interesting is God says, let Judah go first. And what's interesting is when they ask again, should we go again against Benjamin? God says, yes, go up. So even though there's no indication that they sought God's counsel and direction on the front end, when they do follow up to say, should we still be doing this? Should we be doing this? God says, yes. Yes, do. Very, very curious. But then the way that it's all phrased is we're going to purge this evil from Israel. This thing that has been done, this thing that has happened always round, is an awful, horrible, heinous, evil thing. And Israel wants it to be known that this is not going to be tolerated. And what would have happened if Benjamin had just handed over these men of Gibeah? There probably would have been 700 men of Gibeah who died. That's probable in my estimation. What would have happened if Benjamin had said, yeah, we are going to deal with this. Actually, we will deal justice to these guys and come with us. But that's not what happened. This turned into a, you're not going to tell us what to do. You're not going to 
come into our territory on our turf and deal justice. And so there was a war and there was a fight. And it was a lot bloodier and a lot more deadly than it had to be, except Benjamin decided to be willful and stubborn and defiant. What's also interesting is you have here the woman being sent out to deal with the men of the city. And you know exactly what's going to happen. You know what's going to happen if she's handed over to them, and that's exactly what happens. She's not being protected. She's not being honored. This Levite is a scoundrel for doing this, for sending his concubine out there, throwing her to the wolves, essentially. Maybe he said, oh yeah, she can take care of herself. I don't know how he rationalized it, but he figured it was better that he be left undisturbed and let the worthless men of Gibeah do what they will. But that's an evil thing. That's indicative of the kind of rot, the kind of immorality, the kind of vice and evil that happens in a nation, in a people, in individuals, but then also corporately when you forget God, when you turn away from God and you rationalize the worship of the gods of the nations. When you compromise, pretty soon you find that you are compromised yourself. And these are the kinds of things that happen. These are the kinds of things that are done. And it can be a very expensive thing to go back, if you can even go back to the way that it was before. Is there any going back from this? No, no, indeed. And we're still reading about it, and it's a very sobering passage to read and to think about. And by the way, when I say there's no going back from this, what I mean is there's no going back to before this little civil war between all of the other tribes of Israel and the Benjaminites. It's always going to be a formative period story. And it would seem as though that covenant, that agreement, that pact with Gibeah is at the center of this conflict because they made this agreement with Gibeah when Gibeah attempted to do a horrible thing to a Levite who was passing through, violating the laws of hospitality, and then also aspiring to rape a man and also not having any regard for the fact that this is a Levite man. He's of the tribe of Levi. With all these things considered, they do this horrible thing and the tribe of Benjamin says, no, we're not going to hand them over. What goes into a decision like that? to say, no, we're not going to let you, all of you other tribes, we're not going to let you deal with Gibeah. In fact, we're going to fight you over this. What we regard as more concerning than what Gibeah just tried to do, what they did in fact do, raping this woman to death, this concubine of a Levite who was passing through, what we regard as more concerning than that is that you guys would think you can say that needs to be dealt with that you would come into our territory and say, that needs to be dealt with. And so they fight about it. And what seems to be a very little thing actually ends up being a major snare. And it leads to a massive loss of life on both sides. But then think of the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the event that kicked off World War I. Or think about the firing on Fort Sumter. These are events but they have a lot that builds up to them. They end up being the final straw, but they're not really the cause. They're just a cause. They're 
a final catalyst or the combining of these various elements in an explosive way. So also with what happens to the concubine of this Levite, it seems as though there is an expectation that something bad could happen if you set out. And maybe, just maybe, the Levite's father-in-law has some idea of where they are going to be passing through, the route they're going to be taking to get home. I don't know. It's not expressly said. But there's a sense of foreboding in his delaying and delaying and delaying. And for the Levite's part, he doesn't listen to the counsel that he's given from his servant. It would seem in hindsight he should have. Who knows what would have happened going the other direction or leaving at a different time, maybe first thing in the morning so you could pass through during daylight. Anyway, you slice it. There's a lot that builds up to this, and it would seem as though this was coming for some time maybe years, maybe decades, and then someone lights a match, off goes the powder keg. This is gnarly stuff. There was no king in Israel. A certain Levite was sojourning. You should brace yourself when you see the phrase, there was no king in Israel. In those days when there was no king in Israel, which is to say that the fact that there was no king in Israel affects directly how it might go when you're doing something as simple as traveling in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. Even something as basic as that may be fraught with peril. In another time where there was a king in Israel, especially if there was a good king, the king's justice would be meted out to anyone who would violate the norms and the laws concerning hospitality and how you treat men and women. But when there's no king in Israel, Someone might just challenge you and say, hey, there's more of us than there are of you. We're stronger than you. We're going to do whatever we want. We're going to take whatever we want. And you'd best not try to stop us. What are you going to do? This is part of the reason why you need civil government. Because otherwise, what restrains evil? There's no deterrence. It's just might makes right. It's just whoever's the strongest. And Some people who are unscrupulous and manipulative, other people who are naive and overly simplistic, they think that you can have everyone getting along and everyone treating each other decently if you don't have any deterrence, if you don't have someone to enforce the laws. But that's just not true. And judges would dissuade us of that. Judges in the Old Testament as a book would prove to us that with situation after situation, that's just not how it goes. When there is no king in Israel, everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And not coincidentally, what's right in their own eyes almost always is what is evil in Yahweh's sight. If they were doing what was pleasing in God's sight, that would be one thing. But then that's not what it means when they do what's right in their own eyes. That means On the one hand, a recognition of what God has said, what he has communicated about his character, what he has commanded, and by that we mean positive commands and negative commands, thou shalt and thou shalt not. When there's no consideration, what we have is lawlessness and a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. But then this can come to characterize a people. It's not just every individual does what is right in his own eyes. It's when you scale up that kind of an attitude and that attitude becomes normative and cultural. 
that's when you get headings like Gibeah's crime. Because at first blush, you would think, well, I mean, surely it's not all of the men of Gibeah who are guilty of this thing. It says the men of the city, though. The men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house. This Levite, his servants, his concubine, the old man who was being host to them, they were making merry, making their hearts merry, which is to say they were probably having some wine, sitting around, talking, joking, telling stories, and then the men of the city. So how many of the men? It could be anywhere from a bunch of them to all of the men of the city. This was going to be their entertainment. That's what they had come for was to entertain themselves. And insofar as you might have men who are going to join a crowd like that because they want to lead the crowd or they want to be the ones actually doing the horrible things or insofar as you might have people joining the crowd because they just want to watch. They want to vicariously enjoy someone else doing these things. What's missing in all of it is any of these men saying, no, this is not okay. And what would you expect if there are such men in a crowd, let's say it's 700 men of the city, if they object, what happens to them? Well, they probably get beaten to death. They probably get killed. If these men, if these men have the kind of character where they're going to find this to be an entertaining way to spend an evening tormenting a sojourner at their mercy or as concubine, okay, you're going to throw us your concubine? All right. Good enough. They're also probably the kind of men who, if challenged from within their own ranks, they're going to just dispatch whoever it is. And so that's probably happened. That's probably that, that's probably part of how it comes to be that this is really Gibeah's crime. Anybody who would dissent is long gone. They've been purged. They've been exiled. They've been driven away. They've been murdered. They've been threatened into silence or bribed into compliance. When everybody does what's right in their own eyes, though, it's not just Gibeah. It can also be Benjamin as a tribe having its own culture saying, you know, we find those men of Gibeah to be rather amusing fellows. We also vicariously enjoy their antics. We've struck up a bit of a trade with them. We enjoy them fetching our water and chopping the wood. And you know what? No, we don't think we will allow anything to happen to them. In fact, we're going to fight to defend them. And we don't particularly care what they did to some Levite's concubine, raping her to death. We don't particularly care what they intended to do to the man himself. No, no, we'll fight you. Typically, when a culture gets to this point, the only thing which is verboten, the only thing which is forbidden, the only thing you are not allowed to do, generally speaking, is tell other people what they're not allowed to do. Hey, don't do that. What did you just say to me? Wait a second. Hold on. Did you just tell me no? Who? And yet, to the credit, perhaps partial credit for the other tribes of Israel, this shocks the conscience. What happens? And they gather together and they assemble their forces and they expect, and there is probably a story there that is not told to us, but they expect that the tribe of Benjamin is not going to be cooperative. So they prepare to make war on that 
Gibeah alone, but on Benjamin. And lo and behold, Benjamin says, no, no, we will not hand them over. No, we will not let you do this thing. We'll fight you. This is wild stuff, really wild stuff. But moving on, I want to follow up on something from our last episode where we were talking about Judges chapter 17 and 18. And there was this curious business where the narrative said that the tribe of Dan had no inheritance in Israel. And I was puzzled by that because I thought for sure earlier in (laughs) the uh, Old Testament narrative, the chronology, I thought for sure that Dan and all the tribes had an inheritance. So how can Judges chapter 18 say that Dan had no inheritance? Well, I did a little bit of study and I wanted to answer this question. I don't like apparent contradictions just being left be, which can oftentimes get me into trouble in days like these where there is no king in Israel, so to speak, metaphorically. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes when you say, oh, hey, wait a second, that doesn't make sense. How can this be true and this be true at the same time? People will say, wait, what did you just say? What are you, are you, are you trying to suggest that I might be wrong? Are you, surely not, right? Surely you're not daring to question. Well, anyway, why does Judges 18.1 say that Dan had no inheritance? Here is a question published at hermeneutics.stackexchange.com. This is a question from seven and a half years ago. Modified just five months ago, viewed 8,000 times. Judges 18.1 says that Dan had no inheritance, but Joshua 19.40-48 indicates otherwise. What am I missing? Just for a refresher, Judges 18.1 says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in, for until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. Joshua 19.40 to 48 says the seventh lot came out for the tribe of the people of Dan according to their clans and the territory of its inheritance included Zorah, Eshtael, Er Shemesh, etc., etc., etc. All these cities are listed. When the territory of the people of Dan was lost to them, the people of Dan went up and fought against Leshem. And after capturing it and striking it with a sword, they took possession of it and settled in it, calling Leshem Dan after the name Dan, their ancestor, this is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Dan, according to their clans, these cities with their villages. Now, what were some of the answers? One says, I believe you are missing the fact that chapters 17 through 21 of the book of Judges are out of chronological sequence. According to the timeline provided at Bible Hub, the incident recorded in Judges 18 concerning the Danites happened only about 25 years after the land had been allotted to the tribes. Robert Jamieson says this, Quote, the Danites had a territory assigned them as well as the other tribes, but either through indolence or a lack of energy, they did not acquire the full possession of their allotment, but suffered a considerable portion of it to be wrested out of their hands by the encroachments of their powerful neighbors, the Philistines, in consequence being straightened for room. A considerable number resolved on trying to effect a new and additional settlement in a remote part of the land. That from commentary by Robert Jamieson. And then we have some additional notes. Joshua 23 opens with, And it came to pass for a long time after Yahweh had given rest unto Israel from all their enemies round about, that Joshua waxed old and stricken in age. Joshua 24.29 records Joshua's death. And it came to pass after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Yahweh, died. 
being 110 years old, we can be confident then that the words of Joshua's last address to the people of Israel occurred just before he died, which means the events of Joshua 23 to 24 and Judges 18 are happening at much the same time, i.e. around 1375 BC. Now, during Joshua's last speech, he says, Behold, I have divided unto you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from Jordan with all the nations that I've cut off, even unto the great sea westward. And Yahweh your God, he shall expel them from before you and drive them from out of your sight, and ye shall possess their land as Yahweh your God has promised you. So Joshua died before Israel had fulfilled the charge given by God to go in and possess the land, Deuteronomy 10, 11. And what is recorded in Judges 18 simply gives us a more detailed picture of one part of the action at that time. We also have an additional comment here on this stack exchange. The phrase, for unto that day all their inheritance had not fallen unto them among the tribes of Israel, KJV, of Judges 18.1 would not appear to be a claim that the tribe of Dan had not yet received any of their inheritance since both Zorah and Eshtael, cities of their inheritance, Joshua 19.41, were said to be under their control in Judges 18.11. Thus, Judges 18.1, in my opinion, refers to their dissatisfaction with the location of their inheritance relative to the other tribes. It went out for them, Joshua 19.47, such that they sought some more amidst the other tribes. As far as timing, Judges 18 it would seem that comparing Judges 10, 15 to 16, and Judges 18, 31, they could not have set up the graven image until much later. Okay, so why this is important, why this is relevant is, one, when you come across these kinds of apparent contradictions, if you don't pause, what may happen as a result is your brain says these things don't fit together, and subconsciously, you just kind of forget about both things. Whereas if you delve in and you figure out, okay, how can these things be true at the same time? It's more likely that it's all going to stick. And also that you're going to have more confidence that these things are true. You're also going to be more rightly handling the word of truth. If you're a Christian, you want to be able to answer somebody's question of why there are contradictions in the Bible if you're trying to witness to them. If you're trying to speak with your children and your children say, hey, how come this says this? But this other place, it says seemingly the opposite, or how come the Bible says this, and yet we do this? What's up with that? How do these things make sense? If you're answering for your own son or your own daughter, you want to have confidence and be able to say more than just, I don't know, or it's not that important, or who cares? No, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, which is to say that the selection we just read in Judges chapter 19 and 20 must be profitable and also, if there's something of a mystery to how Judges 17 and 18 coincide with some of what's said in the book of Joshua, well, maybe part of the profitability is that we would learn to roll up our sleeves and be reasonable and reason it out. Study closely. Listen closely. Maybe that's part of the profitability. Also, too, it's important to understand something of the context to understand what does it actually represent? What does it actually mean that this tribe or that tribe is doing what they're doing? If you felt yourself listening to yesterday's episode or the episode from a couple of days ago, I suppose, our last episode, talking about the Danites and this man named Micah 
had his own private, his own personal household Levite, if you found yourself feeling uncomfortable, like, ooh, was God pleased with how these Danites were relating? Don't just shrug and pass on and be a baby about it. Don't be a baby about it. Man up, men. Woman up, women. I don't know. It doesn't really work the same. Be mature. That's the big idea. That's the point. Be mature and put the work in. You know, I asked here years ago when there was a open call, open invitation at a church we were members of and very much involved in, a seeker-friendly Willow Creek affiliate in Hillsboro, Ohio, called Good News Gathering, when an open invitation was put out to ask and submit Bible questions for the pastor, Jeff Lyle at the time, to answer, I put the question in that I'm curious what you do with this passage. This business in Judges chapter 19, chapter 20, why is this in here? (laughs) What is this about? Why is the story in the Bible? What's the profit? What's the benefit? What's the gain that we're supposed to derive from this? And I wasn't trying to make things uncomfortable and awkward, but there was a part of me that all the way back then, we're talking 13, 14 years ago, I was uncomfortable with myself how nice church was and how nice church was in relation to how nice the Bible is, how nice God and his people are when it says they're being righteous in the things that they do and the things that they say. I was disturbed that maybe we're too sanitized here. We're too positive, encouraging, Caleb. All the way back then, that is roundabout when I started growing more fully into this conviction that we're too nice, right? We're too nice. Being nice is only so good as it is obedient. But niceness can actually be disobedience because we're affirming things we shouldn't affirm. We're too ready to agree with and condone things that we really ought to disagree with. We ought to at least reserve judgment on. But I submitted the question and to Pastor Jeff Lyle's credit, He answered the question, as I recall very well, by saying, this is in here in the book of Judges so that we understand that Israel is sinful. Israel does not follow after God, and this is why we needed a Savior. This is why Christ came so that we would be delivered from our sins because these kinds of things happen when everybody does what's right in their own eyes and does not do what's right in God's eyes what God says to do. And that has stuck with me. I thought that was a particularly good answer to the question. And the question was answered, by the way. It was, I thought, well, maybe it it won't be brought up because it's not nice enough. You know, it'll be too jarring and they'll look at it and they'll say, yeah, no way, right? We are a seeker-friendly church and we are not going to delve into that stuff because we'll scare off the truth seekers. Kudos to Jeff Lyle for having recognized that, no, you know what? Actually, some truth seekers want to know the truth of the answer to these apparent contradictions. Are they actually contradictions or what? Another important thing to know is that not every time you see something being described and not immediately condemned, does that mean that it is 
prescribed. What the Levite man does in the context of Judges 19 to 20 with his concubine after she's raped to death, even his throwing to the mob of the men of Gibeah, that being done and it not being immediately condemned in the narrative, that doesn't mean that it's being condoned. That doesn't mean that it's a good thing. That doesn't mean that you should do likewise. There is a standard of right, and this is being put forward for your consideration so that you understand how bad it can get when people do whatever is right in their own eyes. When we just make up our own morality and it's entirely subjective and it's whatever you feel or it's whatever the mob feels, you know, this was a mob, right? On the one hand, you can say, man, this guy, this Levite, some Levite he is. Yeah, some mob also. This is why it's important for you to have a fixed standard that is based on who God is, because God's character does not change. What God has commanded, what God has promised, what God has purposed for us, that needs to be your fixed standard because things get really, really ugly. There's really no limit to how ugly things can get on a personal level, on a macro cultural level, when we reject that. That's why Judges 19 and 20 are in there. Let's spend the rest of our time, though, in this episode, talking through a essay over at Post Liberal Order by Patrick J. Deneen. This essay sent to me by my neighbor, two houses down, J.P. Chavez. Thank you, J.P., as always. Thank you, John Paul. Should I call you Pope? No, never mind. Thanks, J.P. In Defense of Order, part one will be where we're at and part of the reason why order needs to be defended is because we have for quite some time now overemphasized liberty out of context without any qualifiers and we've made liberty into a god. In fact, you could argue, and I've always felt really conflicted about this, when we have the giant statue of Lady Liberty in the harbor just offshore of New York City, when we have giant statues of Abraham Lincoln and George Washington and others, and I realize some of these are being torn down, many of these are being torn down in recent years, statues of men from bygone eras 150 years ago, 200, 300 years ago, all the statues have to come down because the radical left wants to rewrite history. And it's hard to do that when you actually have to look in the face of these men who served to give us ordered liberty, not just liberty in an abstract sense, but we've made something of an idol for ourselves just off coast in New York City, or rather the French, ironically and fittingly, made us an idol for liberty. Liberty is not our goddess. We call her Lady Liberty, but we do worship this idea of liberty out of context. God wants us to have freedom. He doesn't want us to use our freedom for an occasion to sin or use our liberty to destroy one another in a malicious, disobedient way. Order is what we need in order to preserve liberty. But the order has to come from someplace. The liberty has to be constrained by God's law, what God has ordained, or else 
it is exactly what I just said. It is using our liberty as a cover for sin and becoming slaves to sin. And then you're not actually free, ironically. Patrick J. Deneen writes, and I quote, starting from the top, let me begin by noting remarkable facts that we are devoting this week to the theme of Russell Kirk's book, The Roots of American Order. The book was published in 1974, shortly before the political ascendancy of modern conservatism, with the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. While that vindication of Kirk's long efforts lay some years in the future, the book appeared in the wake of the establishment of a number of what were to become legacy conservative institutions. Given the minor focus on order among those institutions, Kirk's book was already out of tune in that expanding ecosystem of what was becoming establishment conservatism. Then as now, the emphasis on institutional conservatism was upon liberty or freedom, two words often used interchangeably, especially individual and economic liberty or freedom. For all the claims of defending the variety of viewpoints that arise from a market society, these institutions are remarkably homogenous, indeed essentially indistinguishable in their unstinting invocations of the central value of liberty, while remarkably silent when it comes to a commendation of order. Kirk's book was, in a sense, already out of fashion from the moment it was published. As an experiment, I thought I'd explore some of the prominent language from the organizations that you, students, are most likely to have had involvement with during your time in college or might end up working for after graduation or perhaps even someday running in the fullness of time. These descriptions are generally taken from the about or mission page of the respective websites of these institutions. You won't be surprised to learn that the words liberty or freedom are always prominently featured. Heritage Foundation, quote, free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and a strong national defense. These are the values that we fight for every single day. AEI, quote, a public policy think tank dedicated to defending human dignity, expanding human potential, and building a free world. Cato Institute, quote, the vision of the Cato Institute is to create free, open, and civil societies founded on libertarian principles. Institute for Humane Studies, quote, IHS is rooted in the classical liberal tradition and promotes a freer, more humane, and open society by connecting and supporting talented graduate students, scholars, and other intellectuals who are driving progress in the critical conversations shaping the 21st century. Young America's Foundation, quote, Young America's Foundation is committed to ensuring that increasing numbers of young Americans understand and are inspired by the ideas of individual freedom a strong national defense, free enterprise, and traditional values. Now, I'll just stop right there. He's got several more. Deneen does. He's got several more, but you get the picture, right? Deneen here is pointing out that a lot of these modern conservative or establishment conservative, rather, institutions and organizations and nonprofits, they put out in front a very, if I can put it in my own words, seeker-friendly vision of conservatism. We want to emphasize freedom. Well, wait a second. If this is detached and decoupled from a defense of order, promoting order, then what is it? It's everyone doing what is right in their own eyes, like in the book of Judges. So what are you conserving, conservatives? Are you conserving modernism? Are you conserving an over-reliance on the experts? Because actually, interestingly enough, when you over-rely on experts, 
to do all of your thinking for you, to do all of your scholarship for you, to do all of your decision-making for you. Wait a second. Wait, wait, wait. All of your decision-making for you. Is that actually freedom? Are you actually free? See, here's where it gets to be sticky when the seeker-friendly sentiment that captivated so many churches here about a decade or so ago, a decade or two ago, when that seeker-friendly sentiment is both a cause and an effect of the way we engage politically. Even those who are conservative theologically, if they acclimate themselves to emphasizing all of the positives, all of the happiness, all of the encouragement without any of the correction, without any of the rebukes, without any of the commands, actually, without any expectation of obedience, actually, what you get is a conservation of what progressivism has wrought. And here you can spell rot however you like. You can spell it W-R-O-U-G-H-T, as in what has progressivism made, fashioned, formed. But you can also use the spelling R-O-T, as in progressivism has rotted out our civic virtue and the institution of the family how the individual relates to those around the individual in families, in churches, in community, in civil society, how the individual relates to their government. Progressivism has not given us progress. Actually, quite to the contrary, this emphasis that is immoderate on the abstract, disembodied notion of liberty makes us all slaves. And the proof of that is what will happen if you object to or question or cross-examine the claims of the experts. If the experts are in the corporate news media, you're called a conspiracy theorist. If the experts are in academia, you're called an anti-intellectual. If the experts are in the realm of science, you're called anti-science or you're called a science denier. Even if you're in those spheres you suddenly find that you are cast out. And it is interesting for Deneen to point out that there's a very homogenous, monolithic definition of liberty here, absent any call for order. Now, part of the reason for that is going back about a century to what we would recognize as the modern ecumenical movement that emphasized doctrinal minimalism, but actually also was a major expression of theological liberalism, a way of trying to meld together various liberalizing tendencies when we approach the biblical text, and that to the end of undergirding and supporting the effort of the internationalists to bring about world peace, and that an outgrowth of a lot of attitudes that came out of the most radical abolitionists who wanted to bring an end to the transatlantic slave trade, and then also they wanted to bring the emancipation of black Africans here in the United States. All of this, it builds slowly over time, and one idea feeds into the next, into the next, into the next. But if you trace this back to the radical abolitionists who, when they didn't have a biblical argument to justify outlawing slavery, just said, okay, well, then we're not going to make biblical arguments. We're just going to make entirely pragmatic arguments And maybe we'll just abandon Christianity entirely. We'll become Unitarians, Universalists, 
you start to appreciate how it is actually that some of the founding fathers are dismissed as deists. Now, they weren't all deists. That's bad scholarship. That's sloppy to say that they were all deists. Were some of them? Yes. Did others at various times in their lives express ideas that they probably borrowed from prominent deists that they knew? Yes. But what the founding fathers' generation had in common was they were all men who were products of the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment, in large part, in large measure, was a response to the conflicts between Roman Catholics and Protestants, particularly in the UK, which had made for a very turbulent time. Whichever side of the equation you were on, if this or that king or queen of the United Kingdom came to power and they were a Roman Catholic, if you were a Protestant, you now were going to have a tough road to hoe, unless you just got out, went abroad, came to the colonies in North America. See, what's interesting in the way that the modern leftist in America wants to portray that colonial period, what's interesting is they really emphasize the year the first black Africans were brought to North America to be slaves. They really emphasize that there were Native Americans here when white Europeans started colonizing the land and establishing themselves. They really emphasize that as if the whole point was to come to North America to be racist, right? The whole point was we just want to keep the black man down, you know, but we're going to have to go over there to do it. We just really want to go out of our way to trouble the red man, but they're over there. So we're going to have to go over there to do it. No, what drove a lot of Europeans to North America was that in their own continent, the Protestant Reformation and the Counter-Reformation had made living a peaceable life, a quiet life, working with your hands, minding your own affairs, raising children according to the dictates of your own conscience, providing for a wife and children, worshiping God according to the dictates of your conscience, all of that had been made almost impossible because of the stubbornness and the hostility and the vanity and the selfish ambition of people on the Reformation side and the Counter-Reformation side. And so what the founders gave us here in the United States was ordered liberty. The Constitution, it wasn't written in a night. It was written over centuries, in a sense, just like this instance in Judges chapter 19 and 20 is not coming out of nowhere totally random. No, there's a lot that builds up to it. There's a context that builds up to the moment when all Israel gathers together to make war on Benjamin and Gibeah. Well, so also there was a lot that built up to the Declaration of Independence. There was a lot that went into writing the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. In fact, you might even say that there were thousands of years that went into building up to this idea of ordered liberty and the radical left, and yes, also establishment conservatives so-called over the last several decades in America have largely forgotten that, and we know that they've forgotten it largely due to an overemphasis on liberty in the abstract apart from order. Russell Kirk's book, 
that's being referenced here in Deneen's article, I haven't read. I don't know that one, but I will say I've read his biography of Edmund Burke, and it's excellent. And I've read his book, The Conservative Mind, and it is also quite excellent. Very, very interesting. Do yourself a favor and check it out. If you're curious about what it means to be a conservative, take it from Russell Kirk because he provides a series of biographical sketches for these prominent men, not all of them philosophers necessarily, actually, not all of them politicians, actually, a number of them being just authors, right? Authors of fiction, even, who infused their stories with conservative ideals and used their stories as vehicles for conservative ideas, the conservative ethos. But Russell Kirk would say, what makes the biggest difference between the conservatives and the liberals, really, is this idea that we emphasize the law of God as how we will have liberty. So which comes first? Emphasizing liberty, and then the order will follow, but it'll be order of every possible variety in every direction. Well, in that case, you'll get chaos, and God is not a God of chaos. Or do we ratify the laws of God in our generation and affirm them and agree with them? And do we have the order first, and then subsequently we have the liberty? The conservative would say, you must have a determination on what rules you guys are going to live by, and they should track as closely as possible with what God has commanded, what he's revealed of his own character, and how he created us, why he created us, to what end, to what purpose he created us. If you will do that, if you will order liberty, you will be able to preserve liberty. If you don't order liberty, you will not be able to conserve liberty. The modern conservative movement, or I should say our contemporary conservative movement, by and large has forgotten this, ignored this, tried to help everybody else to forget about it. Don't you go forgetting about it. <clears throat> but back to Deneen. As he writes, after his extended list of various institutions and organizations, which put liberty at the front and center of their About Us pages, and I quote, What's remarkable about this representative marquee lineup of institutions, programs, and organizations that form the backbone of modern conservative movement is the predominance of the words liberty, freedom, and individualism. But what we should also notice is the almost complete absence of the word order, or at best a minor chord which invokes values or responsibility, which are assumed to be entirely compatible with the primary emphasis upon liberty. The absence of even the word order is particularly noticeable in light of its comparative prominence in the title and theme of the book around which this week's lectures and colloquia have been organized, a book penned by one of modern American conservatism's main founders, but whose theme never became prominently featured or a main topic of institutional conservatism. And yet, if there is any concept that ought to be central to the conservative tradition, it is the emphasis on order. The very word, its etymological origin and root meanings, reflects the deepest commitments of the effort to conserve, to preserve, and to sustain. According to the indispensable online etymology dictionary, the word order originated from a few root concepts, ones with some rather remarkable connotations and related ideas. Ordine, from Latin ordinem, 
nominative, ordo, row, line, rank, series, pattern, arrangement, routine, originally a row of threads in a loom from proto-italic orden, row, order, to begin to weave. Compare primordial, which is of uncertain origin. Watkins suggests it is a variant of pi root r to fit together. The original English word reflects a medieval notion, a system of parts subject to certain uniform established ranks or proportions, and was used of everything from architecture to angels, from the notion of formal disposition of array, methodical or harmonious arrangement comes the meaning fit or consistent collocation of parts, late 14th century. Conservatives are generally well known to prefer an orderly world, whether personal habits, cities, buildings, curricula, community liturgy, and so forth, e.g. classical architecture or high masses over the disorder that is one of the singular hallmarks of modernism. The word reflects a preference for formality over informality, and as the image of weaving suggests, a concern for how the parts fit into the whole, not with the aim of elimination of the parts, but their fitting and even beautiful participation in fashioning of a whole that does not eliminate the strands of distinctive particularity. Order governs forms and patterns out of what might otherwise be random disorder or outright chaos. The difference, for instance, between a beautiful downtown in contrast to the degradation of a Philadelphia or San Francisco. At the most comprehensive level, the whole or the entirety, the universus, is presumed to be an order, the comprehensible and intentional creation of a God who orders and who governs over an order Unsurprisingly, there is a close etymological connection between a word that originally signifies formal disposition of array, methodical or harmonious arrangement, and religion. And this is why, not coincidentally, my friends, this is why typically Christians are conservative. And vice versa, this is why typically conservatives are Christians or at least religious. It's not accidental, and it's not some trick. These things go together because your belief in a God who is a God of order, who created everything in an orderly way. Even just think back to Genesis, okay? Think back to on the first day, God created what? Everything? Was it random? Just whatever popped into his head next? God created what? When you read Genesis 1 through 3, And it says, on the first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, God created what follows are categories of things or types of things. Light and earth, separate waters above and below, dry land and plants, sun, moon and planets and stars, flying and sea creatures, land animals and man. God is a God of order from the very beginning. When we jump forward to the New Testament, we see Paul writing instructions for orderly assemblies of God's people for the church, which is to say the ecclesia, which originally was the gathering of the voting age males, the men who were able to vote in the Greek city-state, and it was the men, and it was only the men who were able to vote to discuss how they should respond to this or that opportunity or threat, how to make themselves stronger, and how to relate to various weaknesses and vulnerabilities. You might say that the ecclesia was the gathering of men 
who had authority in the community because they had property. Therefore, they had some measure of wealth. They were invested. They had a business. They had a farm. They had shops. They had trade. They employed people. They had servants. They had slaves. They had families. The gathering of the men to figure out how they would order themselves, how they would act as one man. And this is where you get the idea that people groups are comprised of individuals, but they do have a common culture and a common ethic and a common religion even. Even if the religion is godlessness and paganism, they have a religion. But you might say that this was a gathering of the men who were able to vote based on whether they were invested and whether they had any authority over these various other spheres. They would gather together and they would deliberate over what? Over how they would so order themselves and pool their resources, time, attention, coordinate their efforts so as to order their city in response to something disruptive. Now, opportunity can be disruptive, by the way. Say, for instance, that lithium deposit. They estimate 700% of all of the lithium mines in the whole world combined has just been discovered in the caldera of an old supervolcano on the border of Nevada and Oregon. That's disruptive. (laughs) That's very disruptive. That could cause a lot of disordering. As everybody rushes to develop this, it could be very disruptive because what are they leaving behind? What were they investing in? Now they're not investing in that anymore. Now they've shifted all their attention, their energy to harvesting this. They drop everything they were doing because there's a lot of money to be made over here. Well, wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. This needs to be thought about. Let's discuss this, okay? Let's talk about what the plan is, how we're going to go about making the most of the opportunity without destabilizing our entire country in the process and incurring greater costs than we receive benefits here. Well, so also, if you have the potential of World War III with China, that's a very destabilizing thing. That could be a very, to put it mildly, chaotic thing. Even just the threat of World War III with China is very disordering. And so the decision of an ecclesia forum, the ecclesia, the gathering of the citizens, the men of the city in ancient Greece would decide, okay, how are we going to approach this find of precious metals? How will we make the most of this opportunity? How will we respond to the Persian emissary who just demanded a little earth and a little water as sign of tribute that we are subject to the Persian emperor. And this is not in itself a inherently bad thing. It's an inherently good thing that we would so order ourselves because as 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33 says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. That word churches in the Greek is ekklesia. But that word confusion, you might note, is akatastasia, and it means confusion or tumult or instability. The word peace here refers to public peace, so freedom from war, or peace between persons, concord, agreement. It can be used to describe one who brings peace or a peacemaker, a state of security and safety. Whence the formulae of spiritual peace, the peace of Christ's kingdom. Peace be upon you. 
Peace to you. Security and safety have to do with what? Have to do with what? I mean, at the most base level, domestically, you call the police if someone's trying to break into your home. What does it mean that they're trying to break into your home? Well, that's not an orderly thing to do. This is my home, and I have not invited you in. Therefore, you're being disorderly to try and break into my home against my wishes or with something like contempt for whether I would be okay with that, whether I would welcome that, whether that would be a beneficial thing, whether you're being a good neighbor to break into my home. If you're trying to steal my things, it's like, okay, well, wait a second. This is not just in an abstract sense that I have the freedom to own these things. This is also disorderly insofar as the proper order of things is that I work and I earn and I buy and now I own this and now I put it to use, possibly continuing to work to provide for my family. Or perhaps I have this so that I can teach my children something or enjoy things, rest, relax, bond with my family. You're going to steal this thing. That's disorderly. If you try to be violent towards me or my family, that is also disorderly. When cultures collapse, when cities and states and nations become insolvent, it's because they have become completely disordering and disorderly. When a government purports to be wielding authority and demands that you not question, disagree with, cross-examine it, but all of its actions are actually disordering, creating chaos and confusion relative God's standard, that's when you have revolutions, that's when you have wars, that's when you have the collapse of civilizations and cultures. And always you have some other civilization or some other culture which will come in to fill the vacuum because horror vacui, nature abhors a vacuum. What God commanded is what will happen. He said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That's a blessing, it's permission, but it's also a command. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. If one people completely gives up on that, you will have some other people who says, you know what, we'll go, we'll do it. We'll colonize that area. We will explore that area. We will mine those resources. We will extract and refine those resources and turn them into finished goods to promote human flourishing, chiefly our own. But also, if we're going to derive a profit through trade, we're going to have to sell them to somebody who also is deriving a benefit and sees a value in these things. We're not mining them just for the fun of it. We're mining them so we can sell them. We could take that money. We can buy other things that we need to sustain ourselves and to flourish and to what? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. All of this is ordered liberty, not liberty as in you're liberated from all order because you can't have a body politic that is cohesive when the emphasis on an open society means there are no bonds. There are no rules. There are no standards. There is no morality. There is no ethic. There is no right and wrong. When everybody does what's right in their own eyes, you get the book of judges. You don't get prosperity and you don't get peace and you don't get security. You get chaos and confusion and every kind of evil and every kind of slavery, actually. When you realize that even just talking about some things may cause certain violent agitators to show up at your event and try to break things and threaten lives and livelihoods, when you realize that ultimately there has to be a will to protect and defend the innocent, when you start looking into things that are irregular or there may be fraud, there may be corruption, there may be abuse, when you realize that law enforcement 
needs to bear the sword for something, it makes a lot more sense that the ecclesia originally was the men. The men of the city who gather together to discuss these things. Why? Because it may come to war and it may come to someone who is disordering things and being predatory, threatening life and limb. If you don't just pipe down, if you don't just look the other way, if you don't just move along and let me do what I'm going to do to this person. The men of Gibeah are not met with all the women and the children of Israel coming out to implore them, hey, let's just bake them some cookies. And then we'll tell them again about this good and glorious God of ours who has a wonderful plan for their lives. Let's start a Christian radio station and we'll play the music of some lovely young lady and that will win them over over time if they'll listen to it. What's the response? The response is the men, the fighting age warriors of Israel gathering together and resolving to plan an attack. What is the attack? It's actually a defense of ordered liberty. That Levite should have been free to travel unmolested from one town in Israel to another town in Israel. Chaos of the kind the men of Gibeah preferred was an attack on liberty. Chaos of the sort the men of Benjamin were willing to defend was actually an attack on liberty. It was a destabilizing thing, which ultimately would have destroyed the whole nation. Once you allow those things to go unanswered, there's no end. It just continues to unravel more and more. And again, going back to Patrick Deneen's article about in defense of order, the roots of these words have to do with weaving together various threads to make a fabric, to make a cloth. And this is how you start to get an idea of the word picture, the analogy that there is a fabric to society. What rips the fabric of society is when we say there is no duty, there is no civic obligation, there is no requirement to observe right and wrong, truth and falsehood. There is no standard against which to measure and judge the actions and the statements of someone for whether they should be rewarded or punished. That rips the fabric of society. But what restores the fabric of society? When somebody knows how to knit back together and repair a torn fabric, or they know when a piece of fabric just cannot be salvaged, and then they cut it out and they throw it away because sometimes that that's just what it is. So my wife, right? My wife, Lauren, has a sewing business. And it's a side hustle when she has time because the primary object of her time is to homeschool our children. And she does a wonderful job. It's messy, but then that's life. And these sons and this daughter of ours, they are getting a good education thanks to her knitting together these subjects and planning it out and overseeing them doing the work. But her sewing business, Evelyn Ever After, named after our daughter, her sewing business has her buying fabrics and threads. And we've bought sewing machines, various different kinds of sewing machines. She knows what the differences are between the various sewing machines. I don't really understand how it all works, but she does, right? She understands how to take a pattern and implement that pattern in an orderly way involving measuring and cutting and spooling thread and having the right needles and having the right tension 
and doing things in an orderly way to put together fabrics into something you could wear and you would look nice in and people would compliment you and people would say, oh, wow, it's a wonderful shirt. Where did you get that? My wife, just yesterday, she finished up a shirt. It's a dinosaur shirt for our son Enoch because today, actually here in just the next little while, our daughter Evelyn, who just turned 10 years old yesterday, and our son Enoch are going to go with our friend Kate Bergman and her children to Dinosaur Hill. And they're going to hike. That's going to be a grand old time. But my wife, Lauren, thought it would be really special if Enoch has his own custom dinosaur shirt to wear to Dinosaur Hill. And so she got the fabric. She got the thread. She found the pattern. And she sewed it up. And now it's a shirt. And what it was when it came in the mail, all this fabric and thread, was not something that our son could wear. Now it fits and it looks nice. And as a matter of fact, it looks great, right? It looks fantastic. I can hear the questions now before they're asked, oh, did your mom make that? And I can see his big smile as he answers, yeah, yeah, my mom made this. Isn't it cool? Look at these dinosaurs. Look at these colors. Let's see how my wife goes about sewing things, how I go about recording this podcast. These are both helpful ways for us to provide for our families. And when I say families, I mean we are building in to and investing in, one, the maintenance of liberty. Yes, sure, your liberty, our liberty, but also the insistence on a certain order, not chaos. We have this house full of children. We understand chaos. We understand what it means when there's a lot of noise and everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. And that's where parents are necessary to say, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a second. No, don't throw that. Don't put that there. Speak kindly to your brother or your sister. Is your chore done? Is your schoolwork done? Are you ready to go to football practice? Are you ready for youth group tonight? Is our house ready for biblical training group tonight? Are we ready to go out the door on a Sunday morning to get to church on time? Did you talk with so-and-so? Have you mowed so-and-so's yard? This is the role in the home of mothers and fathers. Extrapolate it out, and this is why you need to have government. And this is why Paul writes in Romans, we should subject ourselves to the governing authorities for no authority exists except what has been instituted by God. Now, that doesn't mean that every individual should remain in place, as is proven by the fact that God raises up kings and he brings them low. He brings up various rulers so that they will occupy these positions. And then if they're wicked and disobedient and disorderly, if they're actually undermining the ordering of a people to do what is good and be rewarded for it, or to be punished when they do what is evil, to restrain evil, God removes them. He has various ways of doing that. But if we say it's all liberty, well, then there is no basis for having government in the abstract, and that's where you get the anarchists saying, we just should dissolve Congress. Let's just not have a president. Let's just have autonomous zones. Let's just have everything be burning man. Wouldn't that be great? No, no, it wouldn't. Actually, it would be the book of Judges. Actually, your order cannot be just to do whatever the chaotic thing is. That's evil. And God is not a God of confusion. That's a very confused way of approaching things. God is a God of peace. Well, how do you get peace? You get peace through the strength and the authority, which comes from God having said, this is the way walk ye in it. 
what God blesses, what God ordains, what God commands, what God purposes, what he promises, that's where peace is found. And that is why we should be conservatives and not say, liberty, liberty, when there is no liberty. Returning briefly to Deneen's piece here, which is longer than I have time in this episode to read all of for you, but I'll just read for you the last two paragraphs, and then I'll put the link in the description for the podcast episode, and you can read the full essay for yourself as you have time, if you have the interest. Quote, the invocation of freedom concedes to the forces of disorder in every domain. Against the degradation of education and disordered curricula, today's conservatives have retreated to invoking academic freedom and viewpoint diversity. Against the institutionalization of gay marriage and transgenderism, conservatives claim the protections of religious liberty to afford a shield from a societal commitments based on a disordered understanding of ordered human sexuality. And what of arguments against the pro-choice movement? How can a conservative devoted to advancing the paramount priorities of liberty and freedom ever hope to defeat a movement that merely claims that the right to an abortion is the very essence of freedom? Quite understandably, institutional conservatism took on a particular set of priorities at a particular time in history, but our moment in history has fundamentally changed. What Kirk understood in 1974 and what we need desperately to understand nearly 50 years later is that order precedes justice and freedom. There can be no justice and no genuine freedom without the predominance of order. Our parties today are not divided between the party of order, right, and the party of freedom, left. Our political world instead pits the party of disorder, left, against the party of freedom, right. Out of such a divide, it can be little wonder that disorder reigns supreme. And that's quite right. That is quite correct. Deneen is quite correct there. You cannot know what justice is what is good to do without an understanding that order comes from a God of order, a God of peace. Peace cannot be had when you say you're going to liberate yourself from the God of peace and the God of order. All of this, however, and here's the bright side, here's the happy bit. All of this actually for the conservative who is an individual and can't just wait on the rest of society or the establishment people who donate the big dollars. All of this can be acted out and implemented right now today in your own life in how you approach what is under your authority. He who is faithful with a little will be entrusted with more. That's biblical stewardship 101. That's a promise of God. Be a good steward of your marriage. Be a good steward of your children if you have children. If you don't have a marriage, well, be a good steward of the opportunity to go ask some virtuous, God-fearing young lady who's available if you guys can figure out that together. Could we potentially, maybe, you know, do you think a gal like you and a guy like me would maybe possibly, you know, get married and have a whole mess of kids and homeschool them someday? What do you say? (laughs) Be a good steward of the opportunity if there are single ladies around who fear God and who respect you, maybe ask one of them. Or if you're not up to that challenge, be a good steward of the opportunity you have to learn valuable skills and employ your time and attention and energy in a profitable way. And in all toil, there is a profit. So get to work, roll up your sleeves and get to work and get strong and get capable so that you can provide and protect. That's a very loving thing to do. If we let our hearts grow cold and we grow weary in doing what is good. We all stop doing that. And that's when 
cultures collapse. That's when invaders come in and eat your lunch and kill all the men, take all the women off to be their concubines and wives. If you work, roll up your sleeves, work, get strong, become a provider and a protector, men, you will find that you are actually doing this thing. You are bringing order also to when you clean your room. Now, one final thought here, because it's been on my mind. The reason why Jordan Peterson has resonated so much with young men is because he is giving them encouragement, which they sorely need and have been getting so very little to none of in our major institutions for decades now. And there are reasons for that. They mostly have to do with selfishness, fraud, bribery, extortion, and the like. But Jordan Peterson gives permission to young men in particular. In fact, he gives them the responsibility. He gives them order, clean your room, make your bed, start with that, wash your face, put on some nice clothes, roll up your sleeves, and get to work. Invest the life that you have in doing what is good and honorable. And you know what? You will be all the more heroic if nobody else around you is going to pat you on the back in short order. If you do it anyways, because this is objectively right and good, and I know that it is because I've studied first God's word, secondarily history, in the long run, Wisdom is known by her children. You will be proven correct if you are doing what is good. And God sees that if you're doing it because God sees in secret, you'll get a reward from God. And that is great. But also too, in the meantime, other people around you will derive a benefit. And here's the secret. The people around you and you yourself will be freer for it. But the freedom has to be worked for. You got to work for it in an orderly way. And you have to conserve the gains and reinvest those gains in a profitable way. In conclusion, in summary, we need order and we need men to have authority and to exercise authority at a local level if we are going to have order that preserves justice and freedom. We need men for that. That's the role that God gave to men. And if you don't like it, well, maybe you just don't like liberty as much as you claim, because your liberty is contingent on men who are willing to provide and protect for that liberty. Our effort should not be on trying to keep men from having the authority locally to put things in order. Our effort should be to equip men to really truly bring things to order in a way that's going to be beneficial. That should be our effort. Instead of, as Marcus Aurelius would say, if I may paraphrase, instead of wasting any more time arguing about what a good man should be, be one. And for those of you who are not men, those of you who are women, look to how you can encourage men to be good men by being good women. You cannot teach men how to be men and nagging them and henpecking them and constantly criticizing them has never worked. For all of human history, that has never worked any more than for a man to just sit around complaining all the time, henpecking, or I guess rooster pecking maybe, women helps women to be the best they can be. Why would it work in the other direction? Just because it's common, that doesn't mean that it's good or that it's going to be okay. It's producing the bad effects that we're seeing in every sphere and it needs to stop. A lot of it is driven by selfish ambition and vain conceit on the part of a few who love to sow division among brothers so discord among brothers, 
They bear false witness with impunity. Stop being a party to it. Stop spreading false reports. The most egregious, vile, pernicious, destructive, toxic false report in our day is that men should not have authority in their homes and in the church and in their communities, in the civil sphere, in the sphere of authority that is particular to the local church and in the home. We need order. It starts with recognizing the order in which God created them, male and female. It was in that order, not for no reason, not randomly, not for no purpose, but that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run as always. Thank you for listening until next time. God bless. You've been listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet show on anchor FM for more content. Like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out the Garrett Ashley Mullet show.com to subscribe to email alerts. When new episodes are published, as always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at Garrett Ashley Mullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.